Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Michael, I usually start every podcast with a question about what your favorite brand was as a kid, but I'm not going to do that with this podcast. I'm going to ask you, how does being a dad of four kids, how has that affected how you approach your job as the head of Cincinnati Children's? Well, I think about it every day, of course, uh, even though my kids are now young adults, but it was interesting, um, uh, literally within my first year of being there, uh, our youngest son, Johnny, ended up having emergency hip surgery. Um, and uh, even though, um, of course, I knew how competent and talented and extraordinary our team was, um, I had never gone through a surgery with one of my kids. And this happened late in the day, into the midnight hours. And, uh, and so it quickly got me acclimated to, uh, hey, this for every family and every child, it's either the first time or it's certainly an important time, no matter how routine the surgery might be to the team and that kind of stuff. And I, I've tried to keep that front and center always in my day, daily work at Cincinnati Children's uh, because we do have a sense that for every child and for every family, uh, this is the time that matters for them. And so we, we try to bring that every day. Worked out okay for your son? Uh, thankfully, Johnny went on and played high school basketball and uh, he's a great kid. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today in the CMO Podcast, I have a very special guest. His name is Michael Fisher, and he's the president and CEO of Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Children's Hospital in Cincinnati is constantly ranked among the top three children's hospitals in the country. Its revenue is north of $2.5 billion a year. They have 630 registered beds, 15,000 employees, and they serve over a million children a year. They have patients from all 50 states and across 83 countries. This discussion with Michael is intimate. It's important. It's it's heart-rendering and it's full of leadership lessons. This is my conversation with Michael Fisher. Welcome Michael to the CMO podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us today. Thanks Jim, great to be here. I think you might have one of the best jobs in the world, if not the best job in the world. Could you imagine yourself doing anything else? Nope. You know what? I love kids and what a privilege it is to be part of Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, uh, my hometown children's hospital, but really one of the research powerhouses, one of the great community citizens, and uh, really a place where every day we are changing the outcomes for kids and their family. So I had the uh, beautiful opportunity last weekend to be at a benefit with you for Children's Hospital. And I mean, it was, it was so much fun and so meaningful. And you were on stage with a few children. 
And one of the kids said, I can't remember if it was the boy or the girl, said that you have uh, given him his life and that everyone was nice to him, the doctors, the nurses. And then he said, everyone, everyone in the cafeteria was so nice to me. So I want to talk in this podcast about how you and your team create a culture like that. Because most leaders would love someone to say that about their organization. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, Brody and Journey were the two kids we had on stage. And uh, Brody was dealing with some uh, neurosurgery kinds of issues. And Journey uh, has had a lifelong uh, battle with sickle cell. Uh, But to see the joy of these kids and how they're thriving, notwithstanding that. And then, as he said, Jim, to be able to have the presence to appreciate not only the quality of care that they've gotten, but the kindness. And so, you know, again, it just reinforces what an incredible institution and privilege is to be there. And I think, you know, to create that kind of culture, first of all, it's generations. I think this has been our community coming together for years. I think there's a little bit of self-selection that goes to people who uh, choose pediatrics from our faculty, from the nurses, uh, but even the people in the business functions. And, you know, we often get compliments on the valet parker, the people who clean the rooms. And I think it's because people know at the end of the day why they're there. So we don't have to think hard about our purpose. It's, it's really palpable. And it's also self-reinforcing. I mean, um, when uh, we see one of our colleagues who looks a little lost or a patient and family literally walking around the medical center, people just pitch in and it just sort of builds on itself. So it's a, it's a great thing. We do, we do work at it. it. It doesn't all happen by accident. We do work at it. Yeah. So I want, I want to get into that in a bit more yeah. detail a little bit later in the podcast. Sure. But I want to do a little bit of a warm-up exercise <laughs> with you. Sure, Jim. And I want to ask you a series of questions about Children's Hospital and what makes it special. And these are questions that my team and I often ask other brand leaders yeah. or company leaders. So I'm just going to go off and, and see where we go on this. But the first one is... What would the world miss if Children's Hospital of Cincinnati disappeared? You know, I think it would miss a generosity of spirit and collaboration. Um, And I'll give you a a recent example and maybe a past example. Uh, But uh, one thing that uh, institutions don't often talk about in healthcare is, in many ways, it's a dangerous environment. Um, medical error, omission or commission. And obviously, uh, children can get hurt in that setting. Uh, Employees can get hurt. And so about uh, 10, 12 years ago, we really got focused on what can we learn from other industries? Uh, How can we get better? How can we create a culture of intensity around safety as well as best practices? And fast forward now, a decade or so later, we've helped build a a children's hospital network of 140 institutions in a couple countries called the Solutions for Patient Safety. And it's all about all teach, all learn. It's all about sharing best practices. It's all about making sure that no child and no employee gets harmed. And we've had tremendous progress on that. Probably uh, 12,000, 13,000 children who've been spared serious harm because of this shared learning and this generosity of spirit. You know, several hundred million dollars saved for the health system. So I think there's that whole sense. 
of uh, what the so world that began here at Children's yeah. and expanded and, out. And and initially uh, with our colleagues and partners in the state of Ohio who have just been terrific, the other children's hospitals in the state of Ohio. But then really uh, through kind of just voluntary engagement, word of mouth, and and a little bit of recruitment, we've been able to just get everybody because I think at a time when there's less trust in institutions at a time when there's this whole notion of hyper competitiveness to say there are some things that transcend that yeah. and this is really one of those things and that i think that generosity of spirit also infiltrates or or really is uh, the foundation of a lot of the research that we do where a discovery uh, the oral polio vaccine or the rotavirus vaccine or some things we've recently done in diagnostics around mental health uh, to be able to share that with the children of the world um, is really, I think, what makes uh, makes it happen. So next question, if I wake up an employee of yours, an associate or a patient, which I would hate to do, and ask them, when I say children's hospital, what comes to mind? What would they say? Kids, pride, love. Um, I think those would be Beautiful three things. words that would come to mind right away. So you're, you're an old institution. You are founded in 1883. So you have a rich history. So what's the most important part of that history can you never let go of? And what's part of that history you should let go of? Boy, it's a great question. You know, it's funny, Jim, you, you frame it in the 136 years of our institution um, because we've actually recently been talking about our 150th birthday. Amazing. So maybe we can come back to that. Um, you know, I think the what we should never let go of are the things you've already been asking about. It's it's the culture. It's the um, relentless focus on children and their health and their potential. And I think uh, as long as we stay really true to that, and we can do better at it, but as long as we stay really true to that, I think uh, we will continue to thrive. I think the thing that we may need to let go of going forward, uh, and we've been working on this as well, uh, how do we make sure, and these are probably a couple of things, but I would say one is, how do we make sure we're not 50 academic divisions or a range of dis you know, different diseases that we work on and that we really capture the totality of the spirit of one Cincinnati Children's, both within the walls of the medical center, but with all of our partners in the community and nationally and so forth. So I think there's that opportunity of something to embrace more and maybe let go of some things that maybe have been a little more parochial in the past. So what is the fundamental core value of Cincinnati Children's? You know, if I, if I say Lego, I'd probably say creativity. If I would say National Geographic, maybe curiosity, Patagonia, sustainability, visa, trust, what would it be for Cincinnati Children's? Well, only if you kind of keep perpetuating that in these podcasts that you're going to be able to talk about it in the same spirit as some of those other incredible brands. I think for us, probably two words, collaboration and kids. And collaboration, because I think everything we do uh, needs to be in partnership with the, the child and his or her family, with other partners from a research standpoint, and really in the health of children with our partners in the community. So collaboration is a big, big uh, operative concept for us. And then, I, you know, of course, kids is foundational. Mm -hmm. So what are your essential points of difference as an institution? You know, why would an, uh, an employee come to you or a patient come to you versus other choices they have? Yeah. So I'd probably answer that in, in both from the patient family lens and then maybe from an employee lens. I think from the uh, patient family lens, um, you know, I think you heard it when you told the Brody story. I think on the one hand, there is this palpable kindness and caring 
Um, and that may be representative of a number of children's hospitals, thankfully. But I think if you go beyond that, it's the breadth and depth of our programs. Um, and so if you have a relapsed cancer as a child or some of the rarest uh, surgical needs and upper airway reconstruction, um, or I could give you many other examples, uh, there are very few institutions in the world that have the breadth and depth of, pro uh, of, of clinical programs and medical programs that we have with world-class infrastructure, world-class talent, et cetera. I think on the, on the ta and by the way, Jim, on the, on the patient side, just to amplify the point, here we are in Cincinnati, Ohio, you know, at the nexus of three states, as you know, but every year we attract patients from all 50 states and usually north of 50 countries from around the world. And in a similar vein, um, we have employees in any given year between 80 and 90 countries from around the world. And so, of course, they have choices. These are, these are the most talented people, particularly our faculty, particularly our research and clinical faculty. Um, and I think they come to Cincinnati Children's in part for that breadth of program, um, in part for that world-class infrastructure, uh, research cores, medical facility, et cetera. Uh, but I think in part, back to that collaborative word, I think that there are few institutions and we've always got work to do on the silos and the, but where really uh, people are so focused on coming up with a better outcome for the kid, either in the clinical setting or research setting, that those, uh, those walls melt away and the collaboration really happens for just better innovation, better outcomes. Fantastic. Well, I want to shift now a little bit into your role, you know, and uh, and your work. Yeah. So you've been in the job now about 10 years mm -hmm. and you've also been a for-profit CEO and we're going to get into your career path in a few minutes. So how do you spend your time? What is the work of the CEO of Cincinnati Children's and how is it, you had to put it in buckets, what would it be? And how is it different from what you did as a for-profit CEO um, well, I, I, I think I spend my time in, you know, a whole range of ways, but where I try to intentionally tend to spend my time, uh, foundationally, I try to lead and model in the area of safety. And so I actually chair that solutions for patient safety network. And we do quite a bit of work on that, both at our own institution, but as part of this broader board and broader network. So that's one. I think two, uh, spending as much time as I can uh, with our employees uh, and our patients out on the floors of both the inpatient medical center and some of our other spheres. Um, you know, our ambulatory settings, our uh, huge mental health campus, um, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I also spend a lot of time uh, with our range of stakeholders, so our board of trustees, our community partners, our philanthropy partners, our institutional partners, trying to figure out how to bring the best of the outside in and how to tell our story outside. Uh, I think you know that's, that's another way. And then certainly with our senior team as we think about strategic direction, important decisions, uh, those kinds of things. So that's probably how I spend my time. I think in turn, and we can unpack that any way you mm -hmm. want, Jim. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of how that might contrast to the for-profit, so my time in leading a for-profit enterprise was, was an entrepreneurial business in the global automotive industry. And uh, back then, I probably spent a lot of my time personally actually helping get business and right. sell and um, you know, uh, put the teams together uh, at different countries where we were doing business. Um, and, but it was a, you know, a, a much less complex set of stakeholders 
and the stakes were not the same. I mean, every day our team has the responsibility uh, to ensure the safety and ideally improve the health and lives of children and to help uh, support 15,000 employees. And uh, maybe to put that responsibility in a little more context, uh, so we this past fiscal year probably had 1.3 or 1.4 million children encounters. And every one of those meant a heck of a lot to that child and that family. That's, that's remarkable. What, what, um, what do you really love about what you do? And the other side of it, what kind of drives you crazy? Yeah. I'm getting a sense of what you love. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I, I love uh, our chance to make a difference for children and their families. And I love that our team gets to do that and take such joy and such pride and such responsibility in doing that. And then as I, you know, indicated earlier, I happen to have sort of the especially rare uh, privilege and confluence of things where this institution that does such amazing things um, and, and such a leader in the world of discovery, it happens to be in my hometown. Um, I look out from our building every day to the high school I went here, to the neighborhood my mother grew up in. Um, so you must be a Walnut Hills graduate. Uh, that would be true. Um, and a, a fabulous high school in Cincinnati <laughs> for those listeners who are not from this area. And by the way, Jim, I think since you mentioned it, one of the things that is fabulous about it, I think that helped prepare me for a role like this, this is a large socioeconomically, racially, and in every other way, diverse public high school that always had a spirit of uh, sursum ad sumum, rise to the highest. And, uh, and so as we think about helping every child, regardless of background, achieve best health and best opportunity in life, uh, it just feels really good to be able to do that in my hometown for the community that I really care so deeply about. So this concept of purpose in business, which you've already referred to in the first moments of our podcast here, it's all the rage, right? And it was a kind of fringe idea maybe 20, 25 years ago with people like Patagonia embracing it. But now it's hard to pick up the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or the New York Times or any publication and not read about some company who is on that journey. So purpose is endemic to your business. It's what you began talking about. It, it inherently attracts people a purpose. But you have 15,000 people and you have some amount of turnover. And, so, and you have 1.3 million engagements with a child every year. So what could others learn from you and your team on this concept of purpose coming to life day in and day out with every encounter, every interface? That's hard. So what do you do? What rituals, what concepts, what practices, what could, what could, what could we learn from how you and your team lead? So, so uh, several things in there, Jim, and it's, it's such a rich question. I mean, uh, one is you've mentioned our team several times, and we've just got so many remarkably talented and passionate people. And uh, I think the work, and maybe we'll talk about this always, is how do you take a really talented team or an all-star team and try to make them into a championship team? And that's, that's what we're always working on. But I think some of the rituals, some of the, the purposeful things we've tried to do to um, continue to reinforce that uh, spirit of purpose um, everything like the following. So one is for, we have new employee orientation, uh, depending on the time of year, it's either every week or every month. 
and uh, either me or one of our senior executives goes to every one of those new employee orientations. Um, and so that we help try to hear what's on the minds of our new employees, why they're excited about why they joined us, and let them know that they can fulfill those dreams and passions here with real purpose of serving the health of children. And how we have tried to bring that to life in part is just what I said, showing up and telling them how important that is. I think that's one. I think two, um, you know, uh, uh, spending time out with our employees and with our patients and families and in the research labs uh, to, uh, uh, you know, help again reassure that why are they here? So when you have the normal challenges of any organization or every business, whether those are budgetary challenges or personnel issues or prioritization issues, uh, it's pretty easy to cut through it most of the time when we're able to bring it back to what's this going to do for that child or this population of children or for the community of children. Um, so we do things like that, I think, to reinforce that purpose. And then, again, you referenced this just joyous event we had Saturday night with 2,500 members of our community. And not only did we have a couple of children come up to stage to tell their story, we had a video of 15, 20 kids telling their yeah, story. For those who were part of the evening's dinner, we had uh, various children who have overcome various diseases uh, that they were experiencing and visited with the tables and just put a smile on their face and shake hands with the guests. And we try to do things like that all the time. And then we, you know, invite our employees to tell their stories of either an incredible outcome or occasionally a really sad thing where they, but it just deepens their commitment to make sure it doesn't happen to the next kid. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Is there anything you do in measurement or evaluation to reinforce that purpose? Um, or you it, don't need to. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, no, I, I suspect, you know, I don't know the answer to it definitively. I can't say I'm looking at a, uh, a composite measure every week of uh, employee sense of purpose. Um, but certainly uh, it's palpable, I think, most of the time for most of our people. And, uh, and I think, again, you can't underestimate the peer dynamic. I mean, we can have great uh, posters on the wall, and we do. Uh, you know, uh, my senior leaders and I on our board of trustees who show just tremendous devotion to the institution can talk the talk. But at the end of the day, what, of course, matters is both what we do, but also when people see what their peers do. And uh, so if they're in the operating room or they're in, a, in our mental health facility, are they showing kindness and care for those kids? Do they remember that, you know, it's, it's not about uh, uh, if uh, X, Y, or Z happened today. It's what did we do to help make that child's life a little better today? In your tenure of 10 years, what's inspired you the absolute most about your role hmm. or an event that happened? What's, is there any defining singular moment of inspiration that you can think about? Well, I can, uh, I, I can uh, share um, a reminder, a motivation that's uh, deep and, and tragic at the same time. Um, but uh, relatively early in my time, I've referenced the concept of medical error, and we had a medical error um, that resulted in the death of a child. 
and um, it was a very sobering event, as anything like that always would be. Devastating event for that family, of course. But it really caused both me, our board, our um, leaders to really take a hard look in the mirror because we thought we were doing pretty good on this kind of work, on safety and the culture of safety. And what could we do better? And how could we learn from it? And how could we ensure that it never happened again? And I think what particularly motivated me or inspired me, Jim, was the grace of the family involved. I, I just can't even imagine um, what that mother and young father were going through. And yet, all they really wanted was, how did this happen? What can you learn from it? And promise us that you're going to be determined to make something good come from this. And we have tried to honor that promise in so many ways. So that 140 Children's Hospital Network is uh, here in part because of that inspiration uh, every year in honor of this child and in memory of this child, we literally close our operating rooms uh, for surgeries except for emergency cases to have every member of the surgical team, the, the anesthesia team and the nursing team, and me and our senior leaders and our board of trustees for an hour. We reflect on the year's safety accomplishments and misses. We talk about the priorities for the year, and in large measure, we dedicate it to this little boy who we lost. So. That was um, very motivating and inspirational on the sort of negative side. And there have been hundreds of things on the positive side that just give uh, me and so many others inspiration to do even more. I want to flip from that story to your um, career path, uh, which is improbable for this role. It is. In some ways, you went to a great It's almost place. like a guy leading a podcast. It's, it's, <laughs> that, it's that improbable. Yes. Uh, very good. You went. You grew up in Cincinnati. You went to a great high school. You went to Stanford, studied economics. Did I have that right? Then you went to Northwestern University and worked in uh, development for athletics. Well, and in actually managing all of the uh, coaches other than the football and oh, uh, men's okay. basketball coach. All so. right. Mm -hmm. So very involved in athletics for several years. Then you came back to Cincinnati in the family business and got involved in a chemical business. Then you acquired an auto supplier manufacturer supplier. Then you went from that to run the Chamber of Commerce as CEO, and you were CEO of the auto company. And then you went to Children's. Mm -hmm. So you I forgot just, a short stint with the private equity firm. But okay, we'll, we'll, right. <laughs> is that a good thing or a bad thing? It was a great thing. A great thing. Okay. It's a great thing. Anyway, a rich career path, an interesting career path. Uh, but you know, and I just walked through it in 30 seconds. What were the defining events or milestones of that career path? path that have made you the leader you are today? Well, you know, I, <laughs> I think the premise is the leader I am today. And of course, that really would be you'd have to ask people who have worked with me and uh, uh, have been influenced by, you know, the things our teams have done in these various organizations. Um, but, but I, you know, it's, it's funny, Jim, uh, one of the, again, many privileges you get in a role like I have is to, uh, meet with a lot of people individually and in, uh, classroom sessions and so forth to talk about leadership and talk about your career path and lessons learned. And, uh, my wife and I, Suzette, uh, we live on a street called Winding Way. And so, uh, 
about eight, nine years ago, I decided I'm just going to call this my winding way talk <laughs> um, because life, I think, is a winding way in so many ways. And certainly for me, career-wise, it has been. But, but I do think uh, you do, uh, if you are both in the moment and get a chance to reflect on it, uh, there are uh, nuggets and learnings and experiences that happen regardless, good or bad, in your career path that prepare you for the next things and hopefully inform how you lead and how you think. And, you know, you touched on my high school. And so for me early on to have this sense of diversity um, and the value of that, you know, I played basketball there and, you know, we, we had quite a collection of characters on the team, uh, including me. And, uh, but, but both the diversity and the, um, I think, pursuit of excellence was really palpable at that high school. I think in uh, college, I could talk about many things in the Bay Area, but for me, it was I studied overseas at a time when that wasn't particularly fashionable, and I studied in Italy. So the chance to uh, already start to think about the world actually very much informed um, and prepared me, I think, to uh, help take a startup entrepreneurial company from my days at uh, uh, Premier, the automotive mm -hmm. services supplier, and actually have a vision for it to be a global supplier. And we ended up going from um, you know, one location in one country to uh, 80 locations in 12 countries by the time I was done as CEO with several thousand employees. So that was informed by that exposure to study overseas. Um, uh, you know, the college athletics phase, uh, uh, as a young person, I learned a little bit about fundraising and never knew how important that might ultimately be in a role like I now have at Children's. Um, and also I had to learn how to, as a young person, manage actually a world-class tennis coach and uh, a pretty accomplished uh, women's softball and field hockey coaches. And so I learned that part of the role of the leader is not to be the content expert uh, or to be more knowledgeable or more important, but to create an environment where others could succeed, to help people figure out the whole, not just their piece of it, and to help uh, provide the resources uh, for success. So those were some early learnings in that. Um, you know, my time at the Chamber of Commerce uh, happened to coincide with some really uh, important both global events as well as some challenging local events. And so 9-11 happened. And uh, when I was- You were the, new then as in the role, yep. correct? And so, uh, and we also had uh, some um, civil unrest or some would have said race riots in our community in that time. And uh, so I was a relatively young business leader at that point, and we had 5,000-plus corporate members from, you know, tremendous corporations like uh, the Procter & Gamble Company and Kroger and GE Aviation to the small entrepreneurial businesses and uh, always been in private life to uh, literally be put on CNN and other national news uh, uh, programs to be talking about our community in the face of those kinds of challenges. Uh, so learned a lot. Uh, about crisis management, about collaboration with a range of other stakeholders, and all of those things, I think, uh, Jim, helped prepare me for a role like now. And I, probably the other two big things I would say in all of those roles were trying to think about uh, strategy and trying to think about talent and culture. And, and again, uh, you know, my father was a, uh, a, uh, uh, my, my biggest mentor by far, um, an incredible human being. Um, and uh, in the business context, he would always say uh, the larger organizations mostly just have a few more zeros, but the real core issues the same. are the same. Yeah. So your father was your most important mentor. Mm -hmm. 
how did he do that? How, how did he approach it? I mean, it's a father-son thing, I know, but <laughs> it was beyond that. You work, yeah, you work with him in a business relationship. Well, I think uh, not inconsistent with some things we've already had a chance to chat about. I think uh, the most important way he was a mentor was how he modeled. You know, he cared deeply about people. He cared about helping his fellow human being. Um, he liked to win, but not at somebody else's expense. Um, he was curious. Um, and so, uh, and he was always thinking a step or two ahead. Uh, and he never forgot where he came from. So, you know, to get a chance to watch all of those things. Um, and then he, um, more than he even probably realized, he uh, had a good, good eye for talent. And he would uh, delegate, but, but always be available as a sounding board. So I used to think the guy never had anything on his calendar. He uh, never seemed to be busy because no matter who walked into his office, he always had an ear for him. And he also walked around too a lot. So, so in many ways, those were some of the, the things I picked up from him as, as a mentor. And, you know, I mentioned a few times in this podcast, and I know I'm very fortunate in this way, but, you know, I am in, in the town I grew up in. And, and yet and he passed away, it'll be uh, nine years ago this fall. Um, but I can't go a week without people who I don't even know telling me a story about some uh, kindness or fun thing or just hysterical thing that they experienced with my dad at some point and what an impact that it had on them. So, you know, of course, those are big shoes to fill, but it, but legacy, inspires though, me. Yeah, right? absolutely. Well, we all wish for that. Man, I hope my children will feel the same. So you are not a PhD or an MD. <laughs> and you referred earlier about, you know, you didn't know the content of tennis or lacrosse when you were working in athletics at Northwestern. I had a bad, I didn't have a bad two-end backhand though. I just, <laughs> I just could have never coached it or played at that today? level. Still yeah, okay? Yeah. yeah, not bad. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I want to, you're, you're, you're leading 15,000 people and, and many of them are incredibly educated yeah. and, um, and, and you're, you know, you're leading people that share a different expertise and experience than you do. And many people, many leaders are in that situation. And so how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, I, you've talked to me a lot about walking around and getting out and being with people, but, uh, how do you. How do you stay on top of that? I mean, how do you lead 15,000 people who are really super smart, super professional, super specialized in many cases? What's your strategy for that? What makes you effective in doing that? Um, what could others learn? Well, uh, I think one thing we can all do all the time is keep learning. And, um, you know, I think recognize that we don't know everything and know what we don't know. And so one of the things I try to do always is listen a lot. Uh, I do try to ask good questions. I do try to um, get multiple points of view on things. I do try to um, ask for help. Um, and then certainly, and, and actually there's an advantage, I think at times, Jim, for not being the content expert or the functional expert in whatever you know leadership role you get it. And by the way, it doesn't have to be at the CEO level uh, because uh, you can ask the innocent question. You aren't a threat to their expertise. Uh, you can model uh, valuing multiple perspectives. Uh, so those are the things I've tried to do. And look, it, it takes a while. Uh, because of all the characteristics you did describe, particularly with our physician and uh, science faculty, um, um, 
I think you have to earn um, the relationship and trust and confidence every day. And I do uh, work hard at investing in those relationships and meeting them in settings that are important to them and showing up in things that they care about. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, my first couple years, um, I mean, I've always loved kids. We're fortunate to have four children. And yet, because I had a business background, uh, an entrepreneurial business background, you know, I, I did get the label of someone being the business guy. And um, it was hard for me to relate to. It just took some time before people see how deeply I cared about kids. And actually, we all cared about the same things. But uh, some of these times, these professional disciplines can get in the way, and you've just got to try to find a way to find that common ground. And of course, that sometimes in the work setting, and sometimes finding ways to to experience those things together, maybe you know, in a more social setting or other settings. Do any of your four children are they in medicine? No. Not yet. <laughs> you never know, but not yet, because if you would have asked me back to Winding Way when I started my professional career in college athletics, uh, that I would have ended up uh, at this point in my career having this you know, tremendous privilege. Yeah, you just don't know what's going to happen with people's careers. So one last question about your career before we kind of go into a lightning round that maybe <laughs> a little bit of a rolling lightning, rolling thunder <laughs> round, I'll say, not right, lightning right. round. Um, you had a serious health issue and you came back to work. Was that a tough call? Did you ever think about not coming back to work? Uh, so just to put a little color commentary on the on the question, Jim, and I'm, I'm happy to do it. Uh, so uh, I just turned 60 years old. Uh, first 58 plus years of my life, I was very fortunate to have tremendous health. And then really out of nowhere over the course of a month, I ended up uh, uh, identifying that I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, um, and, uh, from the time of diagnosis to a week later when I was, uh, I taken medical leave and, uh, spent six months on medical leave with pretty intensive chemotherapy. So, um, you know, uh, that was an important leadership moment for me and for our board, uh, because we decided, and I decided transparency even was really important for our organization and for our community. And uh, that wasn't personally comfortable, but I thought it was the, the right thing. And I think it proved to be both for me and for the organization. And so, of course, you know, when you have a very serious health issue, there's a point uh, where you're not yet sure whether you're going to survive or thrive. And so until I was reasonably confident about that, uh, of course, I didn't know whether I would come back or but uh, once I um, was uh, somewhere between optimistic and confident that I would get my health back, uh, back to this, uh, both privilege, joy, and, uh, responsibility I feel for Cincinnati children's, um, I felt that, uh, I, and we had some more work to do. Um, and, um, I felt like our team and our board and our whole organization had really, and our community, frankly, had rallied to support me and I didn't want to disappoint them. I wanted to come back and, um, contribute as best I could. Uh, that won't be a forever thing because I think it will be healthy for the organization to have the right new leader um, at, and, you know, at some point here in the future. But I didn't think it was quite time yet. And, you know, thankfully, I think there was trust and confidence from our board and our other leaders to also agree with me that they didn't think it was time. And uh, I've really come back, I think, if anything, with um, even more vigor and more more sense of commitment to what we are calling pursuing our potential together. Because uh, we really have thought about this 150th birthday. Mm -hmm. And so we have started to frame up some 
additional aspirations to all the great work we're already doing in the areas of care, cure, community, and culture. And more to come on that, but but I think uh, uh, this institution and the children that we're here to serve um, um, deserve to have high aspirations, and we think we've begun to launch that. Fabulous. If I can help in any way. You already are by doing this, among other things, Jim. So let's end on a little bit of a lighter note. Um, Let me ask you a few questions that just to get a round out. some, some, everyone's always curious about what you're reading and listening to. So we're going to do that. So what's a good book you've read lately? If you're a reader, I have a lot. I start, I'm <laughs> less good at finishing them. <laughs> um, look, it's been a couple years, but it, but it does back to this, uh, how do you get the team to work together? If you haven't read boys in the boat, I think yeah, it's, it's a terrific it's a book and it's a great, it's a great story yeah, about the 1936 Olympics. Yep. So, yep. Very inspiring. How about what's your favorite ritual at Children's? Is there anything around a holiday or a daily ritual or a weekly that you really look forward to and relish? It's probably a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, so look, there, there are uh, rituals that, well, if, so the daily stuff is just the chance to interact with our kids and employees from uh, our environmental services people and the valet parkers and the cafeteria folks to nurses and all of that. Um, and, and then, of course, patients. I, you know, I uh, just have like incredible flashes right now of all these kids I've gotten to meet over the years and uh, including Saturday when we had Leon Bridges uh, playing a little gig in our Seacrest studio and we had that 10, 12 kids get to come in and meet him and um, and so all that kind of stuff. But some of the rituals, look, we have an employee uh, service uh, dinner every year for people at 10, 15, 20, up to 45 years of service. And uh, so I love that. But what I really love about it, the last couple of years, all the senior leaders put on the aprons and we are the ones serving hors d'oeuvres and drinks. And, and I think people just love that this is a chance for us to serve them. That's a great ritual. I talked about the surgical safety stand down that reinforces that culture of safety. Mm-hmm. That's a great one. And one other one that really dates back to the vision of uh, uh, one of the great leaders of your former company, Jim, uh, the grandson of the founder of Procter & Gamble. And we have what we call the annual scientific advisory committee process. And so every year we take five of our uh, academic divisions, clinical programs, whatever you want to call that. So think about uh, it could be our uh, asthma program. It could be our cystic fibrosis and pulmonary related programs or cancer programs. And we invite three peer reviewers from prestigious institutions around the world to come critique what we're doing. Are we world-class? What would we need to do to be world-class in that? Um, And it is such a great ritual that makes sure we're never complacent, that we always stay both humble and hungry and that we're connecting with peers around the world who can also help us advance our mission. So that's a ritual I love. Wow. Great for the people coming in. Too, oh, my gosh. Too. Everyone wins. Yeah. And, and as you might imagine, every now and then somebody says, how about if I come join you? And, and occasionally we get <laughs> some nice great too. people that way. Yeah. That's nice. Your favorite date with your wife? Uh, you know, um, of recent vintage, I would say we're going to go do this again pretty soon. So I love music and uh, Suzette loves it. And so we're going to go see a uh, a little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul concert uh, and probably have a great Italian dinner and a great bottle of wine before that. Sounds lovely. Yeah. The field you're in is unbelievably dynamic. How do you stay fresh and current in your field? Uh, 
you know, I, I think in large measure, it's through the, the, the faculty that we have and, and all the kind of inputs I get from our team. But, I, you know, I go to a range of conferences. Um, you know, I, uh, I, and again, I think this has been really helpful. Uh, uh, there's a group I go to that has uh, peer CEOs, but not from just healthcare providers, from the whole health ecosystem. And three or four times a year, we'll get together. And part of the day is just sort of networking each other about, here's a problem I got, how have you handled it? And this could be health insurance provider, uh, venture capital firms in the health space, uh, uh, you know, people in the retail space who have a health uh, component. And uh, so for me to get out of the pediatric world and the academic medical world and think more broadly, uh, that's a way that- Who uh, organizes that? Um, so our friends at uh, McKinsey and a group called CCI oh, yeah. um, helped do that. And, uh, and the other thing that is, I think is really important thinking about uh, boards of directors or in our case, boards of trustees. So one of the things we, that I was inspired with that is we do now, now do a board dinner uh, speaker series. And so we've been able to get people from various facets, both within healthcare and beyond. So including things like multi-generational talent, people in that world, um, so that our board in their stewardship responsibilities don't get insular and they understand what's going on more broadly. Um, you know, management's supposed to be doing that, but we need our board to have a sense of, are we paying attention to the opportunities and trends that we gotta be paying attention to? Yeah, fabulous. Yeah. So- It is the, rolling thunder as opposed to lightning. Yeah, yeah. I, I told you, I warned you. <laughs> so organizations, companies you admire. Yeah, and 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 again, I think at at the risk of uh, being a little hometownish, um, look, I I have grown to admire uh, the Procter and Gamble company tremendously, and I say that with I've I've known uh, many of their executives and CEOs. I know their deep efforts and commitments around things like diversity and inclusion, um, and giving back to the communities uh, that they've been part of for generations and taking stands on issues that aren't always politically popular, but because they're the right things for humanity. So, um, so that would be a really good example of a large company that I have a lot of admiration for. And I know like all of us, we're always trying to get better and not everything goes perfect, but, uh, but I'd really be remiss if I didn't acknowledge them. Yeah, well, there I was 25 years there and there's a reason I stayed 25 years and uh, 182 years this year for a reason. You know, they do the right thing. It's been the mantra forever. Um, do you listen to podcasts? I will as of now. I'll be, I'll be <laughs> listening to yours, Jim. Very good. So what are you looking forward to this upcoming year? You know, uh, I'm looking, uh, I'm looking forward on the, on the professional front to this, uh, spirit of pursuing our potential together and really making big strides on these uh, big aspirations towards our 150th birthday. I think on the personal front, uh, you know, um, continuing to be healthy, enjoy stuff with our kids and our, you know, extended great family. And, uh, we just took a, a, a big trip with several couples that we're really close with to Italy this past year. And, uh, I think I'm uh, motivated to figure out how we keep finding ways to do things like that. Very good. So who else should we have on this podcast that would be interesting for you? You're our first real strong healthcare executive, and our listeners have been asking for more healthcare, so we're going to do more healthcare. Yeah, you know, um, I think you've got plenty of great people you've already interviewed, and I know a few you've got coming up. You know, I was uh, powerfully reminded uh, last week, um, and I think um, when we think about the voices we ought to have when we think about leadership or designing something big and important. 
and we should never lose sight of um, the customer. And so in our case, I, and in, for your case, I'd think about uh, uh, how do you get some young people who are on the early leadership journey who might have aspirations for what they're looking for in leaders and institutions. I think that might be a really powerful voice. And one other company came to mind that I really would want to say because they've been really formative for me personally in my career. And uh, again, I think is an example of a great global company that uh, continues to try to uh, lead in so many ways and occasionally has had its missteps, as we all do. And that's the Toyota Motor Company. Um, you know, early on in my career as a supplier, they were my first customer. And I learned a lot about uh, going to the site, going to the Gemba, uh, and helping every employee be a problem solver and, and your leaders as coaches. Um, but then to see the way they've given back to society in a lot of ways, um, and they are a great partner to Cincinnati Children's, helping us learn their methodology around the Toyota way, doing things for us philanthropically to put safety seats in uh, the families of Hispanic and African-American citizens, helping us navigate the cultural learnings around that. And we spread that program around the country with their partnership. So uh, Toyota has just been a really powerful friend for me and for Cincinnati Children's. It's a great reminder. I have been working with them since I left P&G. They've been good friends, and I've been with, with them on a number of initiatives. They are a remarkable organization, so we will get them on. So, Michael, thank you. You've been generous with your time and your insight, and, uh, and thank you for what you and your team do every day at that most remarkable organization. Thanks, Jim. Really a pleasure, and uh, we'll, we'll keep working together to help uh, change the outcome for kids. That was my conversation with Michael Fisher. What I loved about this one was just about everything, but I loved how he spoke about his father as the most important mentor in his life. And I loved his career trajectory and how everything sort of led to the job he's had for the last 10 years as the CEO of the remarkable Cincinnati Children's Hospital. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.